0: That if you and I had beef in nineteen, let's say seventy-two, when I see you after school, I see you behind the school, and you and I fight with our fist. That's it. Then it's over. I don't come back. I'm like, man, he kicked my ass. So I'll come back with a gun. The fuck would I have a gun for? (laughs) Just two kids fighting.
1: Welcome to Writers on Wax, the Sound of Graffiti podcast. It's a series of conversations with a select number of artists who are proficient in two worlds, graffiti writing and musical production. The series includes interviews with artists who've contributed to the Writers on Wax series produced by Risdell to give context to Writers on Wax, The Sound of Graffiti, Volume 2, which has just hit the stores. I'm delighted to share this episode with you, which features a conversation with none other than Blade, real name has been common knowledge for years now, but it's the legend of Blade that has captured the imagination of his fans from the 1970s when he reportedly painted 5,000 trains, some of them famously appearing in the pages of the seminal subway art book. There are two things that separate Blade from the vast majority of writers. For one, He's a talented musician as well as an innovative graffiti writer, which is why he features in the Writers on Wax compilation. The other thing that makes Blade unique is that his art and his music predate the emergence of hip-hop, providing his style with a loose and funky aesthetic that remains influential to this day. I'm Mark Dix, and this is Writers on Wax, the Sound of Graffiti podcast. Hello. Hello? Yes, hello. Hey, Mark here. Uh, How's things?
0: Hey, not bad, not bad. Just, just, just wide awake.
1: Uh, Alright. How are you? Everything's okay, actually. i pretty excited about doing this interview. Been doing a little bit of research. And yeah, I'm um, excited to, to hear a little bit about the stories that, that go behind the, the music that I've been able to find. Um, but, okay. So, so um, I mean, you've done a million interviews, but I don't think you've done that many connected really to, to your, your involvement with music. I've got a few references huh. of, of music that you liked, um, but not that many of, of about you as a, as a creator, Of music. So Mm -hmm. let let me can we can you take me back to like the when you first got involved in in making music yourself?
0: Uh it would be nineteen seventy four when I was seventeen and myself and Crotchy of The Crazy Five. We would write songs together. He was the saxophone player and I'm the bass player. And we would write songs together in nineteen seventy four. Uh, which is on the CD that uh, they made for me in Australia with Casino and uh, Peril of 1200 Techniques, and they produced it.
1: And that's That was much later. The the Soda Pop CD, right? It came out in the early 2000s. Is that the right one?
0: Yes, that's the right one. And Soda Pop was written by myself and Karachi in 1974 when we were 17.
1: So um, you were an accomplished musician then already by the age of 17.
0: Well, not accomplished music. We were trying to do our, our little funky band. You know, so we were doing a funky band thing. And then in uh, 75, 76, we started doing uh, disco music and traveling around, you know, doing disco.
1: At that time, were we just? Was it all live instruments, or were you using synthesizers and beatboxes at the same time? Because that was it's a really a, important it, time. There was no
0: such thing. You had to use live instruments. So it's myself uh, on the bass, Crotchy on the sax, uh, Joel Popelski on drums, uh, Spanish John on guitar, El Blado on lead guitar, Jimmy Riley on trumpet. You know, so there was lots of things involved. If you ever look up. Uh, See the group Earth, Wind, and Fire are playing live, or Casey and the Sunshine Band playing live. You know, to make that sound, you really need like seven to ten people. Cool in the gang, uh, James Brown uh, in the early 70s. It took a lot of people to make that sound. There were just no drum synthesizers and computers, there's nothing.
1: I imagine the energy was incredible on on the stage. Um, How difficult was it to get so many people together to practice and and to go on tour?
0: It's really, really hard because, of course, everybody being teenagers and, uh, and you have to go around everybody's schedule because everybody's in high school. So those things make it very difficult you know and you have to answer to your mom and your dad and you know all the bullshit that goes with that it's like i got band practice for the next three to five hours you have to practice all the time so the band is tight and you have to rehearse over and over and over with certain notes that you miss and do again again and again so those things are very time consuming and then after doing that then me and crotch would have to go out and steal paint so we could still bomb trains
1: yeah, so, I mean, these were two serious hobbies. I mean, you I don't even really want to call them hobbies because they, they take so much of your life up. Um, at that yeah, time... Up all your time. Did, did, did you spend more time with graffiti, more time with music, or did, did it depend on, on the year or, or, or your age, maybe? It, it,
0: no, it, it just depended pretty much on how much homework the teacher would give you. <laughs> you know, if the teacher gave you a lot of homework to do, You can't go out and go to band practice. I'm like, you got a a test coming up. In 1974, you're 17. That means you're only in 10th grade. You're just a kid. So you still have to answer to teachers in high school. You still have to do your chores and your errands. And and then you still have to have time for band practice. And then you have to go all over New York City, you know, trying to steal paint. It's, you know, know, and then, of course, you have to go painting trains at 2 o'clock in the morning. So you really, all of your time is used up. And, of course, when you're 17, you still want to have time, so you can go out and
1: have fun with girls. You sound like um, you were a responsible kid um, um, at that time, and you were you respecting. I mean, homework sounds like it was an important. I mean, you, you respected the school, and, and I guess your parents were, were quite no, no, strict with that I as well. Did, I did not. Oh. <laughs>
0: but, of course, if, if you did not, the teachers would kick your ass.
1: Okay. Right. That, and like in
0: the Blues Brothers. You ever see the Blues Brothers?
1: Do you know what? It's one of those films that I've always thought I should watch, but I've never watched the whole thing.
0: Well, make sure you watch the Blues Brothers, the original one. Yeah. With Dan Atwood and John Bellucci. Yeah. Because I went to Catholic school. And if you fucked up, the nun would kick your ass and, and hit you with the stick and everything.
1: So at that time, I guess I mean it's really different from now. Um, I I think thankfully teachers and and parents don't I mean they don't hit kids as much anymore. But when you were growing up, that that was a a reality, right? For for,
0: that was was normal.
1: And and especially if you were going up to
0: school, you get your ass kicked. If the the principal ass hit you with the ruler and hit you because you fucked up, and then they call your parents, and then you go home, and then your father kicks your ass some more with the belt.
1: What effect do you you think that that had on on kids like you?
0: It made you not fuck up.
1: (laughs) I mean... It helped you. Maybe it helps you not to get caught. I mean, you famously never got caught for painting trains, um, and even though you you painted over five thousand subway cars, um, which was I
0: never got caught,
1: which is incredible. You must have been um, uh, really, really cunning uh, or really sneaky to to avoid problems.
0: Cunning, sneaky, and very, very fast. When I was uh, young, you know, even though the police were chasing me and Comet lots of times. You are not going to catch us.
1: Um, Some of your friends weren't as lucky, I guess. Though, I mean, me personally,
0: lots of people got a lot of people that got caught. You have to clean train stations. You have to scrub down graffiti. You get a bad fine. You know, the police are going to kick your fucking ass up and down and beat you in in your head and kick you in your ass. And then you, your mom and dad, have to come to the precinct and they're going to kick your ass some more. So you would do everything possible
1: to run to get away. Um so when when you weren't painting, um when you weren't sneaking out to go painting, were you sneaking out to go to clubs, to go to concerts to see all the, 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 the funk bands of the time that were the, that were touring?
0: No, we were actually for that you have to actually pay. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like you had to sneak; you actually had to pay. There's a picture if you look at the Blade King of Graffiti book. Mm -hmm. You'll see a picture in there of me and Comet somewhere. You see Comet; he's wearing a light purple shirt with Black Sabbath on it. So we went to see Deep Purple and Black Sabbath, which was like five dollars. You know, I guess that'd be like eight or ten quid. Okay, but uh, you know, in those days, that was a lot of money.
1: Yeah, so so you saved up to get in, I guess, or, or you, you found another way. Yeah,
0: you have to save up. You have to save up five dollars. That would take a long time. I went to go see James Brown and 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 what um, uh, Stevie Wonder, Earth Wind and Fire, Cool the Gang. You know, when you see those concerts in uh, in the early seventies, that was
1: that was five dollars. A lot of money. Do you think there was a, a divide between, or do you think? Uh, groups were more unified on racial lines. I mean, you've mentioned rock bands and soul bands, funk bands. Do you think back in the day or mm-hmm. with you and your friends, it was, the, there was more unity amongst, uh, I don't know, young people about what type of music they were into? Yeah.
0: Not only the music, but, but uh, for Crotchy is Jewish. I'm a black guy. Uh, the guitar player, Spanish John, is obviously Spanish. Uh, Joel Popowski, the drummer was uh, Jewish. The singer is Italian, it didn't matter. Comet's Italian, you know, it didn't matter. It just mattered uh, everybody just having fun and enjoying life and being young and smoking weed and drinking wine, and that's it. Even when, when I was painting, I'm saying, let's say 1975, 76, where let's say there's 10,000 people doing graffiti in New York, teenagers every different nationality of person is all painting so you walk in to a a train yard or a train tunnel it didn't matter the other kids are italian and the other kids are irish and some kids are Black, and some are spanish everybody's just painting and having fun and just having a good time and looking out for the police because you know you may have to run away so you didn't fight with each other your problem was with the police
1: what was um what was New York like at that time? I mean, um, I think it was more the, the 80s when it started um, having problems with the crack epidemic and, and, and so on. In the 70s, it was much yeah, I, more, I'm, was it a pleasant I place to live? 80s. I know I know 70s,
0: I don't know 80s, By nineteen, in 1980, even though I was still painting once in a while, I was 23. I was already married to Dolores and his son, eight, nine, eight. I was already married for four years with Dolores. Mm-hmm. So I had to get up and go to my job every day and work hard and and pay bills. And I, me and Comet would paint trains instead of all the time. we paint trains maybe two times a month. And you know, I cannot tell my job. I can't come to work today because I got caught stealing paint and running through train yards. You know, 1980 for me was was almost over.
1: And the, But the, the city, was it, do you think it was a good place to grow up in? I mean, it sounded like a hard place in a lot of ways.
0: Yes, it was very, it was very tough, but uh, everybody was a lot tougher then. And of course, you're, when you're very young, you were tougher anyway. But uh, for me, it was really, really a most fun place because you have the entire underground of New York City as your playground for 10,000 teenagers all doing graffiti from 1970 to 1979. And very little people had any beef. That if you and I had beef in 19, let's say 72, when I see you after school, I see you behind the school and you and I fight with our fist. That's it. And then it's over. I don't come back. I'm like, man, he kicked my ass. So I'll come back with a gun.
1: the fuck would I have a gun for? <laughs> just two kids fighting yeah it sounds like a, at least a, a healthier way to resolve things and um, and what was it like when 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 hip-hop came into the city i mean when when did you fir- when were you first aware of hip-hop and what was your reaction to it
0: uh it was it was probably the first hip-hop song i ever heard on the radio was in 1979 um uh the sugar hill gang song mm-hmm It's the first song I ever heard on a radio, even though Grandmaster Flash did their song in 1979 also. Mm -hmm. But it's the one that you hear on the radio as a kid. And I was like, you know, what is this? And I was like, you know, who cares? I like the music from my time. I want Kool and the Gang. I want uh, James Brown. I want Curtis Mayfield, Marvin Gaye. But the music between 1970 and, let's say, 1974, They have funk music, war, uh, mandrill, you know, music that was funky.
1: So um, you weren't necessarily um, attracted to hip-hop when you first heard it?
0: No, I was too old. When you see people in 1980, 81, you see the kids break dancing on the cardboard box and stuff. I'm already a grown man. 1982, I'm already 25 years old, so or the kids breakdancing at fourteen, cutting out of school and 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 rapping and you know and doing that? When you were twenty five, you do not want to be around kids who are fourteen.
1: And how's your relationship with um, with hip hop changed over the years? Um, have you grown to accept it? Do you listen to it now, or, or is all the music you listen no, to these I days?
0: Um, I don't listen to it. I don't. I, you know, I'm, I didn't grow up with it, so I didn't listen to it. So good, I listened to. Diana Ross and the Supremes and Smokey Robinson, you know, I listened to music like that, you know, I listened to music that was funky music.
1: So um, your your tune that you've got on the on the compilation uh, produced by Rysdale, um, it's called Pac-Man, it's called uh, Pac-Man Blades Theme, and it's, yeah. ki- it's kind of an electro-funk number, so tell me a little bit about how you made this track.
0: Oh, when I actually did that, mm-hmm. since everybody in the band has already had by 1980 and 81, everybody in the band is already married with children and jobs. Everybody is too old, so well, I went out and bought a drum computer, which I still have. Uh, I got a Thunder Rhodes piano that you see in the Blues Brothers. Um, I had a chord synthesizer, you know. But this is like 40 years ago, and I learned how to play the instruments enough so I could actually do it with machines so I could play the music we used to do with our band because Crotchy, uh, he lives in South Carolina. Uh, the drummer lives in upstate New York. The uh, Spanish John moved back to Puerto Rico. So everybody, you know, when you get older, everybody going to see each other when you're teenagers. By the time you are 23, 25 years old, everybody's in different directions with women and children and, and life. <laughs> You know?
1: Sure. So you um, you decided to start making music on your own, and with this new technology, you were able to do it.
0: I was able to do it, and I made that one thing of songs, and uh, a casino from Australia introduced me to uh, Peril of 1,200 Techniques when they took me over to Australia in 2004. And um, they made CDs from it, and then I got to jam with, uh, with their band Live, and they were like, wait you know, you don't play all these instruments by yourself, you know, and I'm like, no, no, I can, I can do that. But you can't do that because you're the king with the trains. I'm like, I can do this also. So they didn't believe me. So they put me in a studio to see me play all the instruments one by one. And they're just standing there watching me. It's like, holy shit, this guy's playing like five or six instruments by himself.
1: which instruments do you play then?
0: Uh, The bass. I can, I can play the guitar a little bit. I learned how to master the uh, the keyboard. And that's why I learned how to do those things. And of course, with the synthesizer, you can make different sounds from it, whether you want piano or, or organ or computer kind of sounds. So they just kept retracking it. And they're like, "Wait, take off the organ sound and or put the piano sound. Don't do the piano sound. Try to synthesize the sound. Instead of strumming the guitar the funky way, want you to pluck the guitar. So I was showing them yeah, yeah, I can do all of these things, and then I have to do the drum computer. Uh, I think it's like a Roland Seven Hundred Seven some shit like that. I have it you in the house, and you gotta press it with your finger. And they're like, you know, it takes up all day, but, but I did it.
1: So tell me um, about actually what music exists out there. Um, that people can listen to then? I mean, we've got, we talked about Blade and the Base Jamban, that's the Soda Pop CD, um, uh, that's still yeah, that's available right online. Um, you've got the, the yeah. track on the new compilation, uh, the Writers on Wax compilation. Um, how much more music exists that you've recorded? Um, I guess that there's people contacting you frequently to try and put stuff out there. No, no,
0: no, they all contact me for graffiti. Everybody just wants me to keep painting. They want me to make uh, more canvases because the paintings. Of course, when I'm gone, paintings are worth lots of money. So it's nice to hear someone ask me about music because the art collectors have been collecting my work uh, since 1982. They do not care that I know how to do music. They want to buy paintings uh, because of the value.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me personally, to have to know that a, a musician or, or an artist is also a musician, for me, it, it makes it makes the, the art all the more richer, you know. It, it makes the myth around that person um, even more powerful. And so, to yeah, to hear this yeah. this track for, for me is it, it just makes uh, your your body of work even more impressive. Um, and so yeah. it makes me want it makes me want to hear more. Do you have any plans for for producing more?
0: No, no, unless somebody actually sent me somewhere and said, hey, Blake, you know, we can get you a bass guitar and jam with a band. I was in, a, I was in, a, fuck, fuck, uh, I was in Madrid and there was a band playing near the museum in Madrid. This is, I guess, a few years before pandemic. And they had me go to this club and they were like, you know, Blake, we got a bass guitar for you. And there was a guy there with a trumpet, a saxophone, a drummer, a guitar player and they, i just walked in and started jamming with them and they recorded it i did the same thing in amsterdam i did the same thing in australia just you know as long as you have a bass guitar for me and there's a bunch of other people we can all make music together
1: that sounds fantastic do you still um do you still make music for fun at home do you still jam yeah
0: but i of course i, do. I have i have my 1976 white rickenbacker since i'm a teenager so i actually use that maybe three four times a week just sitting around i to sit here and watch tv and fiddle with it and it makes it so you do not get arthritis you know it keeps your fingers and your wrist and your forearms it keeps them limber
1: okay that's nice uh, you're down in, in florida now i guess that also helps with the uh, with the other joints um with the with the good weather that you've got down there
0: yeah, like today. Uh, I guess so. Uh, if you're calling from Spain, I guess it's maybe twenty five, twenty seven Celsius.
1: Uh, unfortunately, not. No, it's, it's it's kind of winter. It's not much over freezing, and you can really feel it. But yeah, uh, most of the t- most of the year, it's really good weather, as you know um, from the visit that you made yeah, over that's here.
0: That's why I moved here mm. because everybody I know is still in New York, and I'm like, you know, fuck New York. I'm I'm sick of freezing and the cold and the snow and. Uh.
1: <laughs> and you're, you're very and close I'm to, or, or quite close to Miami, and the the the, the Museum of Graffiti. They have the, um, and I understand you were at the, the the launch of the the Writers on Wax exhibition. Yes,
0: I was there.
1: So tell me um, what you remember about it. What was special about it for you?
0: It was nice being interviewed and people talking to me about music. And uh, the guy that was interviewing me, the tall skinny
1: guy, Perry? your partner. Ferry? Yes, yep.
0: yes, I forgot his name, Yeah, that's yes. okay. And into being, being talking to them, and talking about music, and, uh, and my love for music, and, you know, that was really, really made me feel good, it helped my heart feel good, that somebody really cares that I know how to be a musician also.
1: Do you think that um, the Museum of Graffiti is really important for, for our subculture?
0: Yeah, of course, it's the most important museum for me in Miami because uh, what people do not know is that there is no street art without the original graffiti. Everybody around the world—they all love street art—but they don't know. It's like without the graffiti, people doing the trains back in 1970, you know, there would be no street art.
1: Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting for me as well that Ferry has, has made this happen, he's made this bridge with, with you happen, because it was another Dutch person, wasn't it, that first brought you over to Europe? In, in fact, I, I think you consider... Yes, Amster- That's right. Yeah, that's, that, that's what I've understood. So, um, tell me a little bit about the first time you were in Amsterdam and, and how it, it happened. Okay, the first time I was in Amsterdam was
0: 1982. And Yaki Kornblad sent for me and Dolores to go over. And it was very nice because he sent for us in June. So, of course, when we got there, it was 28 Celsius every day, which was really good, so you can go out and enjoy and drink lots of Heineken. So I was happy, And uh, he did the show, and the show sold out. And collectors like Vincent Blasblum and Hank Pienberg, uh and uh, Wilhelm Schistra, are the ones that were really collecting all of the early uh, graffiti art from myself, uh, Ramosy, Dandy, Futura, Lee, Seen, uh, Quick, Days, you know, those basic names. Uh, I think they bought a couple of Basquiat and Keith Haring, you know, because they ended up being street artists. And uh, those are the artists that those uh, collectors were buying in 82, uh, in, in the beginning.
1: When you when you reached Amsterdam you, you saw um, I guess the the streets didn't have that much graffiti at the time did you feel that this was no. new ground for you to conquer or were you just thinking about galleries yeah. at that point
0: I was thinking about you know, just galleries not writing in streets but I remember uh the what I did see in Amsterdam was uh I don't know if it's the running man or the walking stick I don't know what it wa- what it was that was everywhere. Uh, there were graffiti names like Shoe, uh, Delta, um, Cat, and a graffiti girl named Mickey were the names that you would see also because it's the early '80s. So I got to see that when I was walking around in Amsterdam. I remember those names.
1: Yeah, some of these names are, are still active. Obviously, Delta is one of the another one of the artists who's on the compilation. Uh, Mickey is a legend, um, and uh, and still. Mm-hmm still active um so that yeah that's for me that's interesting that combination between new york and amsterdam um and yeah i think for, for them to take you over for them to choose you amongst other artists i think is, is also really interesting um i mean the, the the artwork that you produced at the time uh, and continue to produce i think it's it's really, well, you can see it in the influence of a lot of people today still who, who kind of take influence from your style, direct influence from your style.
0: Yeah, and what's good is Jocky uh Hank Pineberg, and Vincent Blasphoon, they're still alive. Um, when I hang up with you, uh, they took the first paintings I made from the early 80s. They're in the Groninger, Groninger Museum in Groningen right now. And there's a picture of Yaki standing there maybe one month ago.
1: That's so sweet. And and do you collect art yourself? Have you got an interest in other people's work as well?
0: Well, I collected art from the graffiti people. I have Days, I have uh, Knock, 167, I have Zephyr, you know, I have Seen, I have the people that uh, I admired from my childhood.
1: Who's your all-time favorite Uh, writer?
0: My all-time
1: favorite what? Your all-time favorite graffiti writer. Me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, but you actually
0: print that. That way I sound like
1: a fucking asshole. That I <laughs> but who's your favorite graffiti guy? Myself. <laughs> uh, uh, right. You have a lot of confidence. I like it. Okay. And your second favorite? Lee. Lee. Okay. Interesting. Also an incredible artist. And how about
0: Lee Krionis?
1: And how about uh, what about your favorite? Yeah, this is going to be my last questions, right? Your favorite band and your favorite song.
0: Oh, that one—that there's too many for that. But uh, when I painted my train piece number five thousand in the Blade Book, yeah. When I painted that train, I had my boombox with me, and a song came on the radio. It was called the Shaker Song spyro gyra right that yep. was the and from that time to now i the music that i listen to that gives me inspiration to paint is music by spyro gyra pat Metheny group uh and the Rippingtons. so oh, okay now you did you print it right so you don't say pat Metheny. Pat McNey Group yeah. from uh, from the eighties and nineties. Yeah. And uh Rippingtons and Spyrogyra. When I listen to that music to this day, it makes me pink better.
1: Well, this, is, um, yeah, this, record- this, this interview is going to be, um, go out as a podcast. It's going to be an audio recording, so we're going to be able to play a little bit of the music um, that you mentioned uh, during the interview. Um, well, if, so- you
0: can, if you can play the Shaker song by Spyro Gyro, mm. not the live version, yeah. the original one. From, okay. From that, that's when I painted my 5,000 train. Mm. I was just standing there outside of Esplanade Tunnel at the last car. And I'm flipping through the radio stations, and I heard music. I've never heard this kind of music before. And I heard it was like, this is the Shaker song by Spyro on WRDR 106.7. And I left it on, and it made me create better. For more than forty years, and it gives me inspiration to hear that in the Brickley Dunes and Pat Matheny group
1: group. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been abs- it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I think it's well for me. What's been so special is that you seem to have such a good memory of all this stuff. I personally can't remember things I that I did last you know week.
0: Why? Because I didn't do freaking drugs, man. No, you Everybody didn't. Did hard drugs?
1: Oh, really? I didn't do
0: the hard drugs? I'm like, what do you want to do? Right? I'm like, all right, I'm going to smoke a couple of toks of weed. And then within the paint, the drug for me was being creative with my artwork, not not needles and, and hardcore drugs. I'd rather, what's your, you know, I'm like, I got 20 cans of paint. That's my drug. I'm going to make a beautiful color thing on a train with my name.
1: Well, we're all really glad you did. And we're really glad as well that we're able, we've been able to hear some of your music um, on the new Writers on Wax uh, Sound of Graffiti album. Um, I hope we can hear more in the future. We're going to stay tuned um, to your Instagram account where I guess you um, uh, announced most of your news. Um, and, yeah, thanks so much again for connecting. It's, been, it's not been easy to hook up the time to talk to you, but it's been worth the wait. Uh-huh.
0: Yes, and I'm 66 years old. And when I get off the phone, I'll send you any pictures I can find. I'll try to send you over to barn. No. So if anybody uses something, you can see at 66 years old, if you don't do drugs, you can still
1: look and feel young and be fit. We can we can only hope that we look as good as you at 66 years old, Blade. Mm-hmm. Cool. O-
0: Thank
1: o- you. Okay. Have an excellent day. Um, we're going to send you the recording of the interview as soon as uh, as soon as it's ready. Okay.
0: That sounds good, and please
1: let Dolores know that uh, that everything got done. Yeah, I will do, and I'll let Ferry know too. Okay,
0: thank
1: you. Okay, thank you. Goodbye. Have a good day. Bye. Right.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Writers on Wax is a project that sheds light on the musical output of graffiti writers, providing a platform for these unique artists... Who are as comfortable with an aerosol as they are sitting in front of a synthesizer. Some of the names to have featured on the compilations include Oshimeos, Ven, aka Adam X and Nug. Like, follow and share the series if you like what you heard, and go to royzdail.com to get your limited edition copy.